I thank God that Terry is my son and Kim is my daughter-in-law. I love them greatly. I appreciate them and I appreciate the way you have treated them here. Yes, Brother Bob, it was, I didn't realize exactly how many years I was trying to think today, but uh, I guess 33 years ago I was first here. And if I recall correctly, I did a whole weekend on missions, on the need for evangelism both in our country and in the world. And then you elders and I, we agreed together that I would challenge your congregation on giving. And then I preached on the land the last lesson on the joy of outreach. And this good congregation responded in such a way that, as I recall, you were able to put on another missionary immediately. You got your contribution up several thousand dollars. I distinctly recall at the time I came here it was 12, so you've continued to put it on up, 12,000 a Sunday. That was my first experience with this good congregation. I continue to love it, love it even more. Thank you for honoring me with the invitation to preach tonight. I appreciate it greatly. Listen to this evaluation of the universe. It's called God's Autographs. I stood upon a hill one night and saw the great creator write his autographs across the sky in lightning strokes, and there was I to witness this magnificent, tumultuous divine event. I stood one morning by a stream when night was fading to a dream. The fields were bright as fields may be at spring and golden mystery of buttercups, and then God came on and wrote his autograph in dawn. This author sees God's greatness in nature, in the creation that God has done. Paul also does that. In fact, in Romans 1, he talks about that quite a bit. But maybe Paul marvels even more at the greatness of God that can be seen in taking human beings and changing them from people that are distorted, like Paul was, and changing their minds and influencing them with Jesus Christ our Lord and making them human beings that serve him and glorifying him. Listen to Ephesians, the third chapter, verses 20 and following. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul stood in awe of God's power. But he stood in awe especially of the power of God that works in you, that has worked in you and that has worked some at least in me and changed us. Of course, Paul's concept of God is the Holy Spirit's concept. It's the true concept of God. In 1 Corinthians 14 at verse 37, Paul says, If any man thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things that I write unto you are the commandments not of Paul but of the Lord. And not only are the commands that Paul writes from the Lord, the descriptions are from the Lord too. His descriptions of God are Holy Spirit inspired. And therefore, Paul's concept of God ought to be my concept of God and your concept of God. So we want to study several descriptions of God tonight. These descriptions are found, as you see on the screen, in the writings of Paul the Apostle. Now, the reason for this study is to understand who God really is. I think there are a lot of people in the world that rebel against God, maybe even some of us that are immature members of the church. We rebel against God because we've made up our minds how God is and how he should be and how we think he is, and we try to worship a fabricated God and not the true God of Scripture. 
Paul describes the true God of Scripture. If we understand who He is, we will want to worship Him. If we understand who He is, we will want to bring others to Him, don't you see? And so let's look at the descriptions of God. Look first of all at the fact that Paul says God is, point number one on the screen, notice it please, He is the God of glory, God or Father of glory. In Ephesians 1 at verse 17, Paul spoke of the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Surely you've noticed that's not the only time that appears in Scripture. In Acts 7 and verse 2, Stephen is speaking, remember, and he says, Hear me, brethren, fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And it's not limited just to the New Testament. The same description is found in the Old Testament. Go back to David in Psalm 29, verse 3. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. What does it mean to say that God is the God of glory? What does Paul, by inspiration, mean by that? Well, in the first place, it certainly refers partly to the brightness or splendor in which God dwells. It's related to the old idea that the artists had of the halo, you know, over any divine being and even over angels. In fact, God is the source of all light. In 1 Timothy 6 at verse 16, Paul says he dwells in unapproachable light. Light emanates from him. In John 17 at verse 5, as Jesus prays about going back to heaven, he says, glorify me, Father, with the glory with it which I had with thee before the world was. Glory, that light, that brilliance. After Jesus had gone back to heaven and came and appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, you remember that, Acts 22 and verse 11? Paul was blinded because of the brightness of that light. And so glory then refers to that brightness that emanates from any heavenly being in his glorified form. But there is more in the phrase, the God of glory, than just brightness or splendor. It also talks about his power, about his might. In John, the second chapter at verse 11, we're talking about the turn, Jesus turning the water into wine. And John writes this, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Jesus manifested obviously his power. You can't do that. I can't change water into wine. The God of glory talks about the God that's almighty, the God of power, don't you see? The same power is in view in Romans of the sixth chapter in verse four. There Paul talks about Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. What's that? It's the power of the Father. Again, it was this power that the poet wrote about. He said, one night I stood and watched the stars, the Milky Way and ranging Mars, where God in letters tipped with fire, the story of his tall desire had written rhyme and signed his name, a stellar signature of flame. Creation's dawn was deep in night when suddenly let there be light, awaken grass and flower and tree, chaotic skies, the earth and sea, and then to complete creation span in his own image, God made man and signed his name with stroke most sure. Man is God's greatest signature. God is all-powerful. I don't suppose I will ever forget the first time I was flying back from Germany over the Alps Mountains. I'd finished gospel meeting in Frankfurt on Sunday. It had snowed during the weekend, and I flew over the Alps of Switzerland. 
and the sun was out shining brilliantly on the snow. And I remember I still have the photographs I took from the window of that plane. Anybody, any person that can create all of this is the Almighty God. Indeed, our God dwells in splendor. Indeed, our God is almighty, all-powerful. Do you have troubles in life? All of us do, don't we? He can heal, cure, reconcile, repair. He can do anything for nothing is impossible with God, Jesus said in Matthew, the 19th chapter in verse 22, before, because he is first of all the God of glory. But that's not the only description Paul gives of his God and our God. Notice, secondly, he is the God of peace. You ever noticed how many times he is described as the God of peace in Scripture? One of them is Romans 15 and verse 33. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. The same description is found at Romans 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Philippians 4, 9, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, among others. That latter one says, and the very God of peace sanctify you holy. To get the full meaning of our God being a God of peace, we need to go back and look at man's situation after the fall of Adam and Eve. In fact, Adam and Eve had become enemies of God because of their disobedience of the heavenly Father's dictum. Isaiah, the 59th chapter, verses 1 and 2, says, Your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and your God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they created a wall between them and God. And God is on this side and they are on this side. And there is an immense wall between them. And there is no relationship anymore. And that's exactly what happens when I sin and when you sin. And how can we get back together with God if we want to? Even if we could do a thousand good works every day, the rest of our lives, we could not get back in God's sight. We could not even attract his attention because as Isaiah says also in Isaiah 64 and verse 6, our righteous deeds are like filthy garments or filthy rags. We couldn't even attract his attention. So man on his own is in a desperate, miserable situation when he finds himself as all men that are adults do. He is separated from God and miserable and has no peace. I recall one time when I was living at Wynn, Arkansas and preaching there, I believe it was 1981. I used to go and visit the hospital nearly every day. And I went in one morning and a nurse that was there was not a member of the church, knew me and knew I visited regularly. And she said, Mr. Edwards, there is a lady down in room so-and-so and you don't know her, but she doesn't know you, but she wants to talk with a preacher from the Church of Christ. And I told her you visited regularly and I would send you down and I went down and there was a some year old lady by the name of Rachel. And the sad story she told me in the next few moments was that her only daughter was living and she was the only person she had left in her family. She was living with a drunken truck driver. And she had had to go live with that daughter in a trailer house in Wynn, Arkansas. And that guy had come home the night before drunken, beat up her daughter and then started working on an 80-some-year-old lady and left bruises all over and one broken bone. And she was in the hospital and she said, Brother Edwards, help me get out of this hell on earth, if you will, please. We did help her, but that's not my story. The story is that when one sins, there is enmity and conflict and bickering and fighting in relationships. 
And it causes not just spiritual problems with God, the biggest one, but it also causes physical problems. One medical doctor told me that he believed he would estimate that at least 60% of hypertension, high blood pressure, is caused by people not living according to their consciences. And it causes even physical problems. Can you imagine if that man had any conscience left, what happened the next morning when he sobered up and what he thought of himself if his conscience was not so far scarred that he couldn't even feel anything? But it is to that kind of man and woman that God can be, yea, wants to be the source of peace and reconciliation. How do you find, define peace? One good definition is a harmony of relationships, mutual accord. And God is the source and author of it. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19, it is Paul again who writes and he says, God was, was at the time he was down here on the earth. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. God reconciles. God mends. And the peace that God gives through repentance and obedience and baptism, first of all, he gives the remission of sins. Acts 2 and verse 38. We are baptized for the remission of sins, the wiping out of sins. And that point of conflict is removed and that wall is knocked down and we can be united with God once again, don't you see? And people that were in enmity with God become friends of God. That's what happened when we were baptized for the remission of sins. In Romans 5 and verse 10, for if while we were enemies, get it please. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, and much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved. We can now be friends of God once again because he is a God of peace. And further, as a result of that, he also gives the peace of mind and peace of heart, if you please. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Philippians 4, verse 7, written by the same Paul, inspired by the same Spirit. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a wonderful peace we can have in God. I was probably 21 years of age, as best I can figure it up. I was a preacher boy attending Lipscomb. I was preaching out of the little church east and, and a little bit uh, south of Nashville, Tennessee. Yazaway, Tennessee. And a lady from Gasway who'd had cancer about three times before, I'd just been there about a month, and she went back to the hospital for another operation. Her name was Powell. And as I went home that Sunday night, I heard she was in the hospital, might not live. And I went to the Murfreesboro Hospital to visit Sister Powell. I really didn't know what to say. I'd just been preaching a short time, and Sister Powell began saying to me, Now, Brother Edwards, if I don't get to come back to the congregation she said I may not make it this time and I reached over and I said sister Powell don't talk like that God has helped you before God will help and she reached over and put her hand on my arm and said listen to me young man and I listened and she said you think I'm afraid to die God has given me a good long life he's blessed me with a good family and I'm at peace with the idea of dying you see our God is a God of peace in fact, this peace is only, however, for those who truly, sincerely try to serve him and really dedicate themselves to him. It is not for non-Christians. 
Oh, if you're here and you're a non-Christian, don't you go away wondering. God wants you to be a Christian. God wants you to have his peace, but you can't until you obey him. In fact, God's peace is not even for the half-committed Christian. Maybe there are some in this audience who kind of listen a little bit, but don't listen very carefully and, and don't really dedicate themselves and are not really seeking first the kingdom. This peace of God is only for those who seriously and sincerely try to seek him. Listen to what Ralph Cushman has wrote. It is not inspired, but it sure corresponds with Revelation. He said, go live in the peace of God, my friends. Live deep in the peace of God. But the peace of God is for those who obey. For those who listen and hear his voice each day. Who listen and march by the master's side. Who have heard the call and have not denied. The man who lives in the peace of God is the man who will walk where the master trod. Indeed, only if I, only if you seriously try to obey him each day and take his word seriously as he promised to you to be the God of peace. He is, number two, the God of peace for those who are serious about obeying him. But even when we do try seriously to obey, I think all of us who have been Christians very long would admit that it's awfully hard to deal with the problems of life sometimes because life is set, beset by trials and temptations and opposition and we fall short and we're weak. And knowing this immediately, Paul and the Holy Spirit assure us that God is also, look at number three on the screen, God is also the God of perseverance and encouragement. Or if you're reading the King James, it says the God of patience and comfort. But listen again to one translation of the passage you heard read a minute ago. We're in Romans 15 verses 4 and 5. Whatever was written earlier was written for our instruction that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now the, may the God of perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. If you have the New American Standard translation like I do and I work from most of the time, you will find a footnote under verse 5 and it says that literally the text there says he is the God of perseverance and encouragement. He is the source of these necessary traits. He, promised to help, he promises to help develop those in us as, or as Christians if we seriously follow him. How do you define perseverance? Well, perseverance in our lingo is the steadfast pursuit of a goal. <clears throat> keeping on, keeping on, not quitting. Not quitting no matter how hard the, the life gets and the, and the trials are. You know, one big problem with our society today, I fear, is a lack of constancy, a lack of steadfastness. My wife was working in a lawyer's office in Wynn, Arkansas several years back, and a young man came in and bought a marriage license. And he promised within the next day or so, I don't know just what day, but within the next day or so, he promised to live with that young lady all of his life and protect her. Ten days later to the day, he came back in and filed for divorce in that same office. Oh, we don't carry through, do we? The first problem that comes along sometimes, we just kind of give up and throw up our hands. But God is not like that. God continues to pursue the heart of man. He continues to pursue our hearts. You remember in the Old Testament how he did with Judah? He had to punish her and send her into Babylonian captivity. But even in Babylonian captivity, he sent Daniel 
to prophesy to them and tell them if they would repent, he would bring them back and love them in the land of Palestine. He sent Ezekiel also, and he begged them to come back because God perseveres with us. One Protestant author has called God the hound of heaven in a good sense because he stays after us. He doesn't give up on us. He is a God of perseverance. Well, how do you define encouragement? He's a God of encouragement. It means to inspire with courage. It means to cheer up. It means to cheer on. In fact, if you will look at that word right in the middle of encouragement, do you see that C-O-U-R? That's the word for heart in Italian and in Latin basically also. God enheartens us. He puts heart back into us. God cares about what goes on in your life. Are you an elderly person maybe dealing with quite a few difficulties, maybe physical difficulties? Maybe you've been left alone by a partner who passed away and you feel lonely. God will enhearten you if you will allow him because you are special to him. Several years ago, I was teaching a vacation Bible school at, in Arkansas in another city, not when where I lived at the time, but I was teaching that VBS and a little child came out and he had on the front of his church I am special to God. And I thought, boy, I can't read that ex those exact words in any passage, but there is no doubt that's what the scripture as a whole says. I am special to God and you are special to God. He cares about you and what's going on in your life, don't you see? And note our God gives us that assistance, that perseverance, that encouragement. He gives you that through his word. That's one way at least. Look again at verse 4 of Romans 15 there. For whatsoever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. That's one of the places he gives us perseverance and encouragement. We need to read them. Yes, publicly. We need to be in every Bible class that we can be in publicly, but privately also. Fathers, are you leading? Mothers, are you leading your children in the reading of scriptures in the home? That's the biggest place where children can and should be influenced. Are you accepting that responsibility of teaching about God and his perseverance and encouragement? To the floundering Christian, this passage says something, Romans 15, 4 and 5, that is. It says that God cares when you hurt. God is on your side. He wants to help you. But it also says we need to repent if we've been unfaithful. Except you repent, you'll all likewise perish, Jesus Christ said twice, Luke 13, 3 and Luke 13, 5. Unless you repent and try to avoid sin, and God can't be on your side, it takes you also. And if we will repent, and if we will be serious about following him, this passage says he will persevere as our guide and protector and encourage us, and we will never in this life walk alone. I love the words of the poet. You never walk alone, my friend, though you may think you do, for in your sorrow and despair, God always walks with you. There is no hour, no passing day is not by your side. And though unseen, he still is there to be your friend and guide. So when you think you walk alone, reach out and you will find the hand of God to show the way and bring you peace of mind. Indeed, because he is the God of perseverance and encouragement, there to cheer us on to the goal Look carefully, God is also the God of perseverance and encouragement, number three. But having spoken of the goal, that brings us to our fourth description that Paul and the Holy Spirit give of God Almighty. 
He is number four, the God of hope. He gives us hope. Romans 15 verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. How do you define hope? Well, a pretty good definition is a desire with an expectation of attaining it. You know, if a young man has been stricken by the beauty of a young lady and by her nice personality and they are, they've been courting for quite a, quite a while and he really hopes to make her his wife. And he has some reason to think she's encouraged him some and he has some reason to think he hopes that he can enter into that family relationship and marriage one time. You know, somebody has well said probably that maybe over the door of hell there ought to be a sign that says those who enter here have lost all hope. But on the other hand, in the door, over the door of, he of heaven, there might well be a sign saying those who enter here have realized the greatest of all hopes. Because you see, our hope is that we will be married to God for eternity. We are now betrothed to God. I've been studying in the adult class at my congregation recently, the Revelation letter. We are now betrothed to God and we're looking forward to the marriage of the Lamb when all of this is over. Then there will be the marriage ceremony talked about in Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. And we will live with Him eternally and be a, we are now His bride and we will be His for eternity, don't you see? Realizing that hope. He is the God of hope in that He generates hope in us His children. He generates hope, I said. How does he do that? Well, one way is, as we saw, by reading the Bible. And when you read the Bible, again, you find out he's not like some people that don't keep their word and don't do what they'll say they'll do and they disappoint you greatly. God is very different. He will fulfill his promises. He won't change his mind. Listen to what the inspired writer says in the Hebrews letter, chapter 6, verses 17 and following. God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness. Did you get it? The unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. Did you get that phrase, fled for refuge? You know where that comes from? Joshua 20, the Old Testament. Do you remember that physical relationship when Maybe you'd been in the woods and your axe hand, the axe head had come off and hit somebody and you didn't intend to harm them. And the guy was injured and maybe even died. And you would flee to the city of refuge and the, you would say, I didn't intend to harm that person, had no intention of doing it. And the elders were responsible to, for taking you in, listening to your story. If your story was authentic, they would protect you. You flee for refuge. You flee for safety in that city of refuge. And the reputation of those elders is on the line. Well, elders can sometimes make mistakes, can't they? But when you have fled for refuge in Christ, and believe you me, brother, you are safe in the arms of Jesus. You know we sing about it? Oh, yes, there. Our hope will be realized. He will always keep all of his promises. We will overcome. Oh, sometimes along the way, and that's one of the things that's found in the Revelation letter again, we will lose battles to Satan. The church loses battles to Satan. But remember in Revelation chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, those saints and martyrs are saying to God, how long, O oh Lord, before our blood will be avenged? And God says, wait, there are going to have to be some more who die but it will be avenged. 
Romans 16, verse 20. And God will soon crush Satan under your feet. God's going to win the battle eternally. He will do that through the provision of our God of hope. And the provision that our God of hope has made is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And through him we will overcome. We may not overcome physically. We may succumb to cancer. But if we're faithful, we will spiritually. Revelation 17 and verse 14. Yes, there are figures used here, but listen to the imagery. And these will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb, the Lamb would be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who are with Him are the called and the chosen and the faithful, and victory is in being with Him and in Him. Victory is being on His side because He will crush Satan. In fact, He is not only the source of our hope, He is our inheritance. He is our dwelling place. It is in viewing things through him that Paul, with all the trials and difficulties and stonings and so forth that he went through and imprisonments, it's through him that despite that persecution, he was able to have a very optimistic attitude. Have you ever noticed how optimistic Paul was? Someone has said it was Paul's futuristic orientation that enables him to view the present evil with such eyes of hope. Are you right now going through a lot of trials? Are there problems maybe in your family? Maybe there are other things that other people around you, many of them don't know about? Well, Paul had more than you do and more than I do. And in Romans, the fifth chapter, verses one and following, he said, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand and we exult, get it? We exult in the hope of the glory of God. To exult is to be excited about. Despite the problems, we are excited and we look forward to what's going to happen. We look forward to that celestial abode. We have our eyes turned toward the future, if you please. I purposely asked Brother Bob to sing that song. It ought to be the Christian's mindset. Oh, think of the home over there where we'll be married to the Lamb for eternity. Oh, think of the home over there by the side of the river of light where the saints all immortal and fair are robed in their garments of white. With this mindset, we can keep hope alive despite many, many different trials. My father was in World War I. Best I can figure out, this must have happened around 1918. He was in two of the toughest. He was in the 35th Infantry Division in southeast France, two of the toughest battles of all of the war, the Battle of St. Miel and the Battle of Argonne Forest. Some of you have read about those battles. Many of his buddies died. He was injured. And he told me more than one time that the thing that kept him going was thinking about going home. Home where he was engaged to, the lady that would be my mother. And he was going home and marry her. He was looking forward to that home, the hope of going there. You see, hope is that inner vision that enables us to see the morning star even in the most dismal of midnights. In fact, it is true. Our God is also the God of hope. But now as we bring this lesson to a conclusion, somebody says, well, sure does sound good. Orally. Sounds good on paper even. 
But is it true in real life? Or is it just talk? Let me close with two illustrations that I believe prove that it's true in real life, down where the rubber meets the road. Let me give you one from the Old Testament and then one from modern day life. The one from the Old Testament is from Daniel, the third chapter. There, probably the most powerful king in all of the, all of the world at that time. His name was Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And he had conquered all around him and taken in the Jewish children. You remember Daniel was there and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And you remember that he built that idol 90 foot tall out on the plain of Dura. And he commanded that when the instruments sounded, everybody was to bow down and worship. Only Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego didn't. And some of the Babylonians who were jealous of them and jealous of the responsibility they had been given by the king, they go and report on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king, the most powerful in all the universe with all the pomp and circumstance, calls them in before him and says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you have not bowed down to my statue? And have you ever noticed the gall of these brothers? Daniel 3 and verse 16, they said, O king, we do not need to give you an answer in this. You do not what? We do not need to give you an answer in this, those three Hebrew children say. They're saying, yes, you may be way up here, but there's somebody way on up here. There is God. We will not bow down to your statue. And they said, our God, verse 17, is able to deliver us. You know what deliverance they're talking about? Physical deliverance. But then they say, but we're not sure he will. But be it known to you, chapter 3 and verse 18, O king, that even if he does not deliver us physically, we will not bow down to your statue because God is up there and you're down here under him. They didn't know God would deliver them physically. We know that he delivered them physically. You remember how. I won't go into details. But you know the greatest deliverance they had? Their spiritual deliverance. Did they recognize God's glory, power? Did they recognize God was a God of peace and did the peace of God dwell in their hearts? Did they have God's perseverance and encouragement? Did they have God's hope in their heart? Did they know he was a God? Oh, yeah. He would deliver them finally spiritually and he delivered them that time even physically. No, it's not just on paper. But somebody said, Brother Edwards, look, wait, that's 2,500, at least 2,500 years old. Uh, Why don't you talk about something that's real? Talk about something in the last few decades, okay? I was living in Italy, 1965-66. I was teaching at Florence Bible School, and I would go up each Wednesday night and hold a class at Vicenza up in north-central Italy. And there was a young man by the name of Mario, a strapping young man for an Italian who had gone, he couldn't find a job in North Italy and in that time because of the depression and so forth. And he went into Germany and found a, a job in the car factory up there, or one car factory, probably Volkswagen. About three months later, he fell ill. They couldn't diagnose him. He came back to his hometown and was, went through all sorts of tests in Vicenza. And he was very ill. And I would go to visit him from time to time as I went up each week to teach that class. And we could tell his abdomen was swelling up and finally they diagnosed him with abdominal cancer. 
and they gave him all sorts of treatments, but to no avail. God did not decide to deliver him physically. But Mario had been baptized into Christ. And he's so grateful for what God had done for him that he began talking to those nurses. And as he went down and down and down, his attitude was more outreaching all the time. And in fact, after his passing and after his funeral, three of those nurses in Vicenza, Italy were baptized into Christ. Oh yeah, he didn't win physically, but he won. He gained the victory and he will be a part of the bride of Christ will one day be gathered home to live in heaven eternally. What a wonderful God we serve. Don't take it for granted. So many people around us don't have what we have. Be grateful for what we have. If you're a church member that has been kind of dragging along and just kind of limping, repent, come back to God, get right with him and serve him with fervor. It's the greatest cause in the universe. And if you're not a member of the church and you're here, remember this great God wants you. He cares about you and every problem you face. And as we sing the invitation song tonight, he will be inviting you also to come with faith in your heart, penitent of sin, confessing the name of Jesus and being baptized into Christ. And then walk with him having peace with God and resting in the glory and encouragement of God and having the hope of being gathered home to live with him eternally. Will you come now as together we stand and sing?